Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred was telling me how he likes to make his reliability grow. (laughs) I'll try not to get into too much of a rant on this one. Uh, (laughs) Now, now, reliability growth is, from what I understand, and I know, Chris, you know way more about this than I do and have had more experience with it, but it's basically based on the premise that there's, you get a design and you create a system and there's a finite number of problems with it. And if we just work hard enough and test hard enough and fix them as we go, we'll eventually find enough of them that we can call it a day and ship it out. And the idea is sometimes predicated on build, test, fix or increased testing or, you know, build, test, fix kind of a philosophy. Um, And then you apply some models saying, well, are we finding enough issues in problems and fixing them so that the product is actually getting better as we keep doing things to it. And, and there's a handful of models that do this. I think one that I ran into early in my career was a MUSA model, which was for software development. Mm-hmm. And it was very simple mathematics and, and um, had some nice success with that uh, for a software project actually. And, but it, it's kind of based on the idea that if you, detect a problem and you fix it, that's good. And which is hard to argue with. Well, I think reliability growth technically is any any activity where you grow the reliability of your product. And so technically reliability growth includes, for example, doing it for Mika. Because All right. All right. Yeah. Or de- design for reliability or just right. good design practices and guidelines. I mean, you could put anything in there at all. Right. And that's where it becomes not very useful because you know, we're supposed to be growing reliability every step of the way. So mm-hmm. the next level of specification for reliability growth tends to be, okay, let reliability growth are activities associated with improving um measured or analyzed reliability characteristics. So this could be through, for example, simulation when you look at a strut and say, oh, geez, that's not going to last very long on that bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go back and redesign and do some more finer element analysis on a completely simulated model and you say that is actually going to last a lot longer. That's good. Your reliability has grown. You haven't produced any products or anything like that mm-hmm. or prototypes. Okay. That's still reliability growth. Um, and then there's, let's say, halt testing, for example, where you just try and break it in a scientific way. Right? Well, a good fun way anyway. Right, I, yeah. I enjoy doing that. I, I don't think – if you've never heard of halt before, please don't take away that very basic definition of halt where, which is where you try and break it. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. The idea is you stress it and overstress your, uh, an early prototype in a scientific way to try and find the design weak points, which you then design out of your system um, and make your system stronger. That's also reliability growth. I think the reliability growth you're talking about, again, is a very analytical, theoretical, militaristic um, definition, which is reliability growth is the improvement in tested or measured reliability performance of a product 
that is being used in operational conditions. Yeah, and, and it works great with different. a yeah, it works great with a tank or a uh, helicopter, which something doesn't work <laughs> pretty often. Right. <laughs> Having spent time in those kinds of vehicles, I was never so happy to be in a have a parachute on when I was in a, a parachute club, and we're in a Chinook helicopter, and there's diesel oil or a transmission fluid dripping on us and screws backing out of the housing. And we're like, all right, you think the back door is going to open or we have to go out the hatch? You know, <laughs> Let's get out of here. Are we high enough yet? Right. Can we leave now? <laughs> That's no, I never so happy to get out of the helicopter. Yeah. I remember several helicopter taxis in Afghanistan where some were, were enjoyable experiences. Others were, how long? How long till impact? But um, that's right. Yeah. I, well, I've heard it described from people, you know, that it, like people that design helicopters and work on them, and go, you have to realize that this is just forty-seven thousand random parts flying in uniform, you know, in formation. Um, there's not much really holding this thing together. It's it's a miracle it works. Now they're amazingly reliable, and people get in helicopters every day and fly for an hour or two to to do traffic reports, and they you know they're just in it all the time. But there's a lot of work and maintenance to make that thing happen. Uh, it's amazing to me that in uh, tanks are like that. I it's even the simple tanks. The simpler they are, the fewer parts they have in it, the longer they last. But even then. It's the the stresses those things see on an ongoing basis, even under use conditions, leads to something not working pretty quick. And so reliability growth programs where you drive the tank around a simulated uh, environment that uh, is is your test bed, you drive it around for a couple of hours and and the water pump will fall off, you know, and then, oh, okay, we got to fix that. And all right, now the next thing didn't fail for another two hours later, you know, and, and then you slowly, you fix all these things and design it better. And pretty soon it works almost all day. And that's your goal. The problem with reliability growth, the way we describe it, where it's all about being tested in operational conditions. Now, the reason why a lot of organizations like that is because you can measure reliability as you go. So, uh, as opposed to halt or other other things where you're trying to accelerate failure because you're testing your thing in operational conditions as you do all those design improvements those build test fix approaches you can measure with the hopefully slowing incidence of failures the extent to which reliability is improving well that works great but if as soon as you create an iphone and it and they're ready to release it, it they're not going to wait five years to see if it's going to last five years Right. So that's the problem. When it has to be in operational conditions, the design has to be really mature because this thing is tested. It's supposed to enter um, reliability growth being functionally capable of doing everything. That's the problem. So you mm-hmm. reliability growth, the technical, let's call it the analytical and the theoretical. What's, what's the term we should come up with to to differentiate that sort of reliability growth the uh, well I, i'm thinking of you're thinking of the like the crow amsa model and there's a yeah, handful of others that you know, model yeah there's a handful of different models and they're they're empirical models i believe correct but there's a bit there's a bit of i mean i mean for those statistic nerds out there they actually have what's called a wobble like intensity where the the, the rate of mtbf or hazard rate improvement over time 
is forms a straight line or log log space which actually aligns with weakest link systems so there is some statistical underpinning oh yeah i agree with that the issue i had with that and i'm going to do a little side tour here is i, I sat in a, in, a, in a tutorial at a conference on one of these and and there goes my cat i think the bleeding, the bleeding will stop shortly um, <laughs> um well i was in a, a tutorial and they mentioned a beta and it kind of perked my ears up. Oh, they've been talking about MTBF all the time. What's this beta thing? And he goes, well, it's this why will this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and if we're planning our, our reliability growth uh, test plan, uh, we'll just set it at uh, 2.2. And somebody asked, well, why do you set it at 2. You know, whatever the number was. And he goes, well, it's typically between one and three and, you know, does this. And well, okay, so why did you pick that number? And he goes, well... You have to look at the history of this design team and the last eight projects they did and what was their characteristic, you know, you can model their previous performance of it. And well, how, and then somebody asks, well, what's the result of that? Well, then the model will follow that number. Well, why don't you pick a better number that it runs shorter, <laughs> you know, or pick it if, if the result is assumed from the start mm-hmm. and that guarantees your result isn't that kind of forcing your data into the result you want independent of what it really does? And, and I kind of got lost in that loop and walked out of the room. Right. So the, the issue number one is that you have to start like the design process, which is the worst time to try and change your design. Mm-hmm. It's the most expensive, costly, time consuming place to change the design of your system. And you can't make any fundamental technological design changes. If you're using drum brakes, you're most likely going to continue using drum brakes mm-hmm. Um, regardless of how poorly they perform in mud conditions or things like that, muddy conditions. The second issue, like you said, is that you need to, even though there's some statistical underpinning, it comes down to so many unknowns and the rate of improvement is actually a measure of the design's team ability to design out design flaws. So the whole idea of being able to uh, model reliability growth it's inherently flawed because there's no way known that sort of data exists, especially in this commercially commercial and confidence world. Um, it just it's just not a thing, nor is it going to be what those very contractually driven systems engineering type folks want to see. See previous it, episode for rant. <laughs> yeah, right. So the second thing is you can never model it, and and from a from a physical physics of failure perspective. Reliability growth is always influenced by the total number of potential failure mechanisms you have. If you have, for example, if you take two systems and they have the same reliability characteristics, one has a dominant failure mechanism and the other has a hundred equally minimal failure mechanisms that all contribute to the one single reliability characteristic. The one with the dominant failure mechanism is going to experience the most reliability growth because you only need one design fix to have this astronomical improvement in reliability. So it's all about the number of failure mechanisms you have and the extent to which one or two dominate failure characteristics, which governs reliability growth. So you have to take into consideration design team capability, which is measuring human capabilities, a very challenging thing to do. Mm-hmm. And especially if they've had the temerity to improve since the last thing they designed as a team. And secondly, uh, if you <laughs> don't know, you know, or, you know, one, the, the good guys retired and now they've got some, it, it's, 
Yeah. <laughs> the team changes. The, the right. team changes. Yeah. We don't have, you know, the same crew uh, designing the next system that's been doing it for the last 40 years. And there's right. probably places in the world that that is happening. Um, not, not all that often though. No, you think they'd be trying, they'd be getting close to a pretty robust design by now if they have been designing it together as a team for 40 years, but mm-hmm. this is a separate, separate podcast. So the, so the second issue is you can never truly predictively model um, reliability growth. You just can't do it because you, you need to know the number and distribution of failure mechanisms. You also need to know the capability and characteristics of your design team because reliability growth is not a measure of the system. It's the measure of your ability to design a more reliable system. Um, so that's the second issue. Well, yeah. I, now, I, my one of my very early uh, experiences with growth modeling, it was uh, I was working with a team and their software side of the group um, was, I don't know, was firmware of some sort. And they were saying, how do we know when we're, we've fixed enough bugs? And I says, well, how many bugs are you getting? And, and so they had a plot and they just basically, it was like a mean cumulative function plot. It was just a count over time, uh, right. how many times they're recording this thing. And I think it was a byproduct of the defect tracker system they were using. They could plot, you know, what's the rate of arrivals of these things. And I said, you know, I think I've seen something like this before. So I went uh, it, to the library basically and found a MUSA model, which was right. re- really aimed at software. And it was similar to the Crow AMSA model and that you, it, gives you this, uh, you know, it it gives you a model to say, well, if if we're seeing the rate of arrival of new failures at at this pace, um, we're going to be horrible. (laughs) And if it's tapered off and the rate of arrival is harder and harder to to, showing up at slower and slower speeds, it indicates that we're the fixes we're making are not causing more problems and stuff like that. And I don't go in, I didn't get in too deep into the theory, but I said, Oh, here's a cool little model. Let's try this. And I think it was a, a log plot of some sort. And I put that, that out there and it was a straight up vertical line. They were shooting for the moon and there wasn't enough curvature in it to say when it would kneel over at all. There was no idea. And the, the software manager was like, well, what do we do now? And he says, well, how many testers do you have? How many different sets of conditions and all the other stuff? And he goes, we only have one, um, but we could donate, you know, d- dedicate a couple more uh, platforms to that. Would that help? And he says, yeah. Uh, the issue here is that you're not finding them fast enough. You know, right. you got to get to the point where you're identified the problems before you can go fix them. And you identify the serious ones, and but you just need, a bigger input. And so the model then said, well, if I triple the rate, you're finding these things, what'll happen? And it still goes straight up because I had no data that showed anything different. But after a couple of weeks with the new test beds in place and it, and they were knocking off bugs left and right. I think they had a team in Barcelona that was working, you know, so they had 16 hours of dedicated time for two different teams working on these things. So they were making great progress but they were finding them faster and eventually it kneeled over. And then the model said, Oh, this will give you this performance. And they go, Hmm, that's not good enough. So they doubled down and added a couple more machines and found even more stuff. And the engineers didn't like it because the, the rate of arrivals of these bugs just tripled initially. And like, well, I guess we have to work now. (laughs) 
sounds like your design team was making informed decisions. You were using reliability growth models to help. Well, that was the idea. Is yeah, is like you know they they knew they had a timeline when they were supposed to be integrated with the equipment and ship. And is the question was, are we going to make it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> this this is the way we interpret this kind of a model. And if you're just the rate of arrival of your problems is not tapering off, you're not done yet. You're not even close. And the way these things, they said, you know, here's some examples. And it, once it starts to bend over, you're still not done. You got to get to this point. And, and then you can say, yeah, we've, everything we fix breaks something else equally bad and, and it just kind of gets to a steady state of good enough-ish, I guess is the term. And, and and so that was my experience with it is that, hey, guys, part of the issue here is you're just not finding them fast enough. And which is, and then they, once they found them faster, then they added more people to the team to, to they basically commandeered another section to say, hey, we need to fix these things. And so they made some great progress on that. Um, but that was my early on experience with it. But it was with the system that you could test every single day. It, it right. was functional every single day. And then they could run it on test beds and all kinds of conditions. And you could learn stuff every day. Compared that to a tank, for example. <laughs> oh, yeah, the transmission failed, guys. It'll be a week before we can get, a, get it fixed. Right. And you also can't. Well, you say you can't do it every single day, but you have practical issues with lighting. You have practical issues with drivers, you know, rest periods. You have mm -hmm. practical issues. If you you can't just drive tanks around a test track and expect the test track to Survive. stay pristine. <laughs> you just can't do it. You cannot do it. But the way that mission profiles are so uh, written, they're so specific. You drive 10 kilometers doing this, then you do 3.5 kilometers cross country, then you stop and do radio comms and blah, 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 mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. It, it, it almost requires a circuit-based approach. And by the way, the, the metrics I use, I know it's MTBF, I know, I know it's not good, but you know, if you want an MTBF of 10,000 kilometers, well, you need to be testing in some cases for well over a year to use, let's call it theoretical reliability growth models to demonstrate that you reach your goal. So the first issue was the fact that we need to have a design which is relatively mature. So reliability, theoretical reliability growth always kicks in very late in the design cycle where design changes are are costly and take a long time to implement. Mm -hmm. The second issue is that it's impossible to accurately and predictably model. Um, and unfortunately, we see which means is you don't know when you're done. You don't. Right. You can't say Tuesday will be done with the the growth and it'll be fine. Right. No, it could be Tuesday a year from now. Right. Um, but once you do have that data, then you can work out if you're on track. The problem mm -hmm. is people want these schedules put into contracts, and we have to come up with these assumptions, which mean nothing. And the third issue is that for certain certain products and certain systems, reliability growth testing to meet requirements in operational conditions takes years in some cases. Software is a bit different because you can have multiple instances of the software being run more easily, let's say that, the way you described. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but certain systems, it will take months or years to complete reliability growth testing in a, in a way that allows you to create reliability the way you want it to want it to be in, in, invested in your system. And the fourth problem I suggest that reliability growth testing or theoretical reliability growth testing introduces is that because it's 
so resource intensive. It's so embedded in contracts and so everything else and blah, blah, blah. We need to have test, you know, we need to book out a test proving ground for a year, et cetera, et cetera. It almost becomes seen as the only reliability initiative in the production process. Whereas you and I both know that reliability has to be designed into your process. You can't build it, then test it and fix it and hope that you're going to be on time and on budget and also meet reliability goals. It's just a fallacy. Um, There are certain examples. I think the example you talked about, Fred, is a very good example of using theoretical reliability growth testing to make sure you ship on time. It's fantastic. But too often, I just see people who crave some sort of structure, some sort of schedule, some sort of timeline, some sort of number to to, to, uh, report to this period, and I just never see it end well. (laughs) No, there's, yeah, there's plenty of examples where it's just not the right tool at the right place, yet it's it's one of those things, oh, I got MTBF, I know what that is. Let's use reliability growth because that uses MTBFs. I, mm-hmm. Okay, let's back up a little bit. What are you trying to do here? Um, there, I mean, there are good things about it and it, it can be used yes. it, like any of the other tools that are out there. And it's the right place at the right time. Uh, and there, as you outlined very well, there are constraints, there are issues with it. And but sometimes it is the right tool. It's that we've got, especially if it's a lot of interactions within the subsystems of your of your product, like a tank. Right? Radios don't like being in the mud and high humidity and vibration at that bone jarring all the time. Or next next to the hot exhaust manifold that design team didn't realize was a problem. Right. Um, and then they learn it, right? And they figure that out. And, and then it's the battle of all the constraints and the supply chains all stacked up and the, the team wants to approve it and ship it next month, you know, kind of thing. And, and we got no time. We'll, we'll, get, we'll catch it in when it comes in for repair, depot repairs. We'll fix it then. Yeah. Plus then that's when we make all our money. I mean, there's a gazillion different structural problems in the right. military contracting system, especially in the U.S. And I... From what I understand, from what you've talked about, Chris, a few other militaries run into this problem in oh, government. Yeah. It's just, there's this craving for certainty in contracts and numbers and models and lines that can be, that look all, all good on a PowerPoint presentation before anyone signs a dotted line. But it, it, they're based on nothing. I mean, if you can tell me, you need to tell me the, the capability of a design team, which might not have even been assembled yet, to, to create <laughs> this next great new military or any sort of device, you need to characterize this hypothetical design team's capacity to design flaws out of your system in order to have any sort of chance of accurately predicting reliability growth. That's without even talking about the likely distribution of failure mechanisms. It's just it's just not not a thing you can do. Well, this, I mean, it, it, we're kind of running on time here, but I'm thinking well, how, do, how does the consumer products do this? Is every six months they come out with a new generation of this thing in some industries at some points in time. And, you know, they have objectives. They want it to be good and all these other things and functional and all these other parts of it. But it's a completely different structure. I don't see reliability growth modeling in, in, in consumer products that have a six-month or a one-year timeline total and you got to launch other ways we missed the market. Um, and other scenarios where, but some of those products 
are really durable and really work. And I think there's some other phenomena and, and, and philosophies of that gets driven by what models you use. That might be a whole nother podcast. Right. And I think in uh, many organizations that do really well, we've had a, we've had a podcast on this in the past, many organizations who are fundamentally reliable sometimes never bother measuring the, measuring the reliability of their system because their main focus is influencing the decision-making of each designer, each manufacturer, each maintainer every single day, mm-hmm. typically revolving around one key central philosophy or tool. Um, and that's the, they just know that when they follow, you know, if we, if, uh, we know plenty of organizations which just enshrine for mirrors, for example, and they, all their reliability stuff flows from into and out of those tools, yeah. Right, and that sounds, you know, some saying, well, you've got to use all sorts of other testing and everything else. For me, is a great tool for working out what you need to do with their artists. So some organizations invest everything they have culturally when it comes to reliability into, for me, is other organizations, it's whole. Um, and the, often they just know that if we make sure our engineers get it, understand that they fix problems early it makes their job easier later on etc 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 they will be fundamentally fundamentally reliable devices mm-hmm. now for systems engineers who haven't done a lot of design work but have the qualification or contract managers or project managers that's sacrilegious because they need they don't get the confidence uh, that people who know how to design stuff do when they see it done well they need numbers to get their confidence and that's where it will start to fall off yeah, uh, yeah, I've run into that a few times in different projects. I was like, okay, so anyway, we'll bring it up for another for another day. Um, right. So you know, you listen to this, and reliability growth has a role. It's got issues. It's got its constraints, like a lot of different things are. But if you've got a, a good example of where it just derailed, or it's it's the cat. I got a cat in my lap right now. You may have heard during the podcast. Um, uh, if it's the cat's meow, then, you know, what's the success story? Where did it really make a difference? And we'd love to hear from you on it. It's one of the many tools in our toolkit. And I think uh, the discussion hopefully has illustrated some of the questions you need to ask before you dive into it or know what you're getting into. Um, But also uh, it, you know, what's your experience? You're free to join the conversation and we'd love to hear you uh, do so. You can do that over at ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. There's a, a speak pipe widget there. You can leave a, us a voice message or you can leave us a, a written note or a comment or a question. Uh, Chris and I and the other hosts are also available through LinkedIn or our about pages on Ascendo. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch and we'd love to hear from you. Um, so with that, I'm going to figure, figure out how I can get out from under this large feline cat that's got her claws in my arm because I stopped petting her. <laughs> there's, there's claw growth going on here. That's all. <laughs> Another so, reason why I love dogs. There you go. <laughs> you know what you get. All right. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, thanks much. And I think you've got a podcast coming up or a webinar coming up on growth, don't you? Yeah, I mean, this podcast might come out after the webinar, but yeah, I'm talking about reliability growth, some of the pitfalls, because it's just like any other tool, it has a place. Um, but you can't build an entire house with just a hammer, so you need to work out which tool is the right tool to use. There you go. All right, so you can either link back to it or you can link to it where to register for it, depending on the timing of these. That'd mm-hmm. be cool. All right, 
Great. Thanks, Chris. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers, Fred. Sam, to you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.